It's Tuesday at 8pm and you're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Good evening and you're very welcome to this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and this Saturday we'll see the winners of the annual Blossnerin Irish Food Awards announced. So tonight we're going to meet two finalists and one judge. But before we hear from our guests, a reminder that you can make contact by emailing me s.noonan at live.ie or you can tweet me at Queen of Org as in Queen of Organisation and I'm on Instagram at Sharon J. Noonan. So Blackwater Honey is a Bloss finalist this year and co-founder Andy Shinnick has all the details about the business. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Andy, you're from Blackwater Honey. Tell me more about your business and what you do. Um, so we're a family business, a uh, beekeeping, uh, small beekeeping uh, business based in uh, from my County Cork. Uh, we were established, I suppose, officially in 2020. However, we're uh, at this stage, probably third generation beekeepers. Um, and uh, that's pretty much us. And whenever you say third generation beekeeping, but the business was established in 2020, was it something that was a hobby initially and now you've you've developed it into a business? Yeah, yeah. So um, my uncle and in relations of his before kind of passed, I suppose, the beekeeping knowledge down to them. And um, then my uncles, both my uncles um, were beekeepers and still, well, one still is active with us. Um, and then we kind of learned from an early age uh, with them, kind of exposed uh, kind of during the summer and the winter months, uh, helping them out, you know, for pocket money as it was at the time. Um, but then I suppose last uh, few years ago, I kind of did a beekeeping course myself just to I suppose get qualified and, and know a bit uh, more about bees. And then I suppose kind of last year then, uh, I kind of thought, well, maybe there's a market for honey and uh, I kind of wanted to make it a more official um, and have a brand, I suppose, as well and get our product out there and known because um, we mainly kind of sold to kind of neighbours and family and uh, friends of family, etc. Um, but I kind of wanted to see a brand sitting on a shelf um, and then I suppose with COVID and stuff, uh, the onset of that, a lot more retailers were starting to move online uh, with selling their product and obviously you know you wanted to cut out uh, the middleman with the retailer and sell directly to the customer um, so I suppose last year then I, I uh, was lucky enough I got in contact with South Dublin County Council with the local enterprise authority and they approved me for a website and uh, a shop store and um, got a grant t- towards the helping uh, the setting up of that you know. Well, before you tell us more about the products and what people can can buy online, I want to take you back to your childhood and helping your uncle because children these days when bees are wasps, all this faffing and flapping around and they're all terrified of them. And I know I personally would have been stung very badly twice as a child and would have taken an allergic reaction. But I would be very um, measured whenever a bee or a wasp comes along and I wouldn't do that flapping and screaming and shouting and watching. I like to think I've passed that reaction on to my children, but sadly not. 
because they see others at this. So as a child working with the bees, there there, there must have been no fear there for you. Um, well, we were always feared of getting stung, I suppose. But like, I mean, my uncle always told us like, you know, we're... Uh, take trousers and uh, long sleeve shorts or jumpers underneath the bee suit and you know we were protected um, but like that didn't mean that we didn't get stung of course we got stung um, but I suppose uh, a lot of people's fear is 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 that allergic reaction which a lot of people kind of suffer from and I suppose allergies uh, in, in today's society are on the increase um, given probably you know the uh, less exposure to germs, the less exposure to bee, the likes of bee stings, wasp things, and also just foods are more refined and and greater processed. So you know allergies are starting to build up in, in intolerances in, in people. Um, bee allergies can be severe, yeah, definitely. Um, even myself, when I was getting stung as a as a young fella, like you know, one bee would sting you one day, and you'd have very mild reaction. Another day, you'd get a sting, and it could be a quite a severe act, reaction. So much so that you'd end up having to go to bed for the rest of the day, like you know. So there is that as well, and I think that kind of leads on to whatever the bees are foraging at um during during the year depending on on what kind of you know flowers or or trees or they're visiting you know that probably the you know the kind of the potency of the venom can be quite strong from different times of the year and uh, throughout the year you know um so that was kind of always in the mind but you know there was never the same fear like there is today a lot a lot of people fear anaphylactic shock and you know being admitted to a hospital so that really wasn't there when we were younger like you know but um yeah that you always did hear of the odd case a tragic case where somebody ultimately died from a bee sting you know and whenever you were a small boy, did you foresee yourself doing it for a living, being a beekeeper for a living and being a honey producer for a living? Or what did you want to do at that stage? And what did you go on to do for a career before going into making honey full time? Yes. So, um, as I said, it was we, we grew up on a farm. So, um, you know, it was farming, dairy farming. Uh, we were exposed to when we were younger. I was the eldest son of a farmer. I didn't particularly want to go farming. I wanted to join the army and that's what I did and, and still am doing. I'm a senior army officer in the Irish Defence Forces uh, working in uh, army headquarters here in Dublin. Um, so I suppose uh, I didn't in initially see it as a business proposition. It kind of more, it was like a hobby people kind of did when they were younger. Um, uh, or as I saw it um, and also probably you know, it was more an old person's type interest. A lot of beekeepers that I knew were growing up around the neighborhood, they were all retired or, you know, people doing it on the side um, and would always have kept a few bees, like, you know. Um, I suppose I didn't really see it as a, as a business proposition until I, you know, the last few years and you just see then, you know, other producers uh, getting awards for producing honey and uh and and seeing that you know social media i suppose making it more popular um and obviously the the plight of the bees and biodiversity and climate change you know puts bees to the forefront of the climate action um out there you know um so for for me then it was a case of look look uh you know everybody well you know nearly everybody loves honey and uh, you know and if you have a good quality marketed product you know it, uh, it will sell 
it will sell. Well, tell us about the Blackwater honey specifically and what makes it stand out against the rest because you go into the supermarkets and there can mm. be honeys there that are probably not Irish honeys yeah. that could be importing them. And, you know, what is the difference between that honey and your Irish honey? Well, first things first, we um, are part of the Native Irish Honeybee Society and members of FIBCA, the Federation of Irish Beekeepers Association. Um, so we keep uh, the Native Irish Honeybee, so the correct and uh, scientific name is Apis mellifera mellifera, which is the dark honeybee, which is kind of uh, commonly found throughout Western Europe, uh, the British Isles, into parts of Scandinavia and here in Ireland. That bee has been around since pretty much the Ice Age. Um, so again, there was stocks of bees that were wiped out, um, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and then they were kind of reintroduced from Holland again here. But we still have quite a considerable amount of uh, native Irish honeybees living still in the wild. We grew up catching, capturing wild swarms or wild bees from the forests, and then we basically rehived them. Uh, so basically what we're trying to do is keep uh, a native Irish honeybee to produce uh, our honey. Um, our honey is a raw honey. So what I mean by a raw honey is it's unblended. We basically take it straight from the hive. Uh, we spin it out. We filter it to take out any of the large amounts of uh, wax or, you know, bee wings or things like that that get into the, the, the honey when you're when you're processing it. And then it's just basically filtered to get to remove those large items. And then it goes straight into a jar and onto the shelf. Um, what makes our honey stand out is, as I said, it's rawness, it's pure, and, you know, it's not unblended like you see a lot of these shop-bought uh, honeys that are sitting on the shelves. A lot of them are imported from the EU or non-EU, and you cannot uh, stand over the traceability as to what chemicals or uh, insecticides or pesticide treatments have been used are captured in that honey, which uh, ends up being blended with some other Irish honey and then sold off as Irish honey here. So as I said, you know, we have strict protocols, obviously the Department of uh, Agriculture, Food and Marine um, have only licensed pesticides when it comes to the treatment of varroa mites. So all of that has to be recorded. And as I said, you know, we have full traceability on what is added to our honey. And as I said, the only additive is the, whatever miticides and stuff which have to be you know used at the end of the year so as i said you know you have to be extremely careful when you put those on so it doesn't end up tainting the honey you know so that's how we can stand fully stand over a product that we're getting which is 100 percent natural raw irish honey and that helps us stand out and, and charge a higher price against our competitors you know um, you can charge cheaper with all these blended honeys because a lot of them, the makeup, um, you know, in a lot of cases, like I take, for example, there was a study in Asda in the UK where they took the shop bought honeys off the shelf and they tested them all. And it was found out that nearly every one of them had some sort of corn syrup or rice syrup blended into the honeys. So they were all basically adulterated honey. So that's what, by buying from a local beekeeper, you're getting a pure raw natural product which nature and the bees intended are you limited then in your capacity and how much you can produce each year is it quite an exclusive honey because there aren't a million jars of it available 
Yes, exactly. So you're limited then by the number of hives um, that you own. Uh, and obviously they can only produce a certain amount of honey, maybe like, you know, between a good year, between 50 and 100 pounds of honey. Uh, so, you know, uh, this year, not so good, probably down by a third overall. Last year was a poor year, very little honey production. Last year was actually a disastrous year for a lot of beekeepers. So you are extremely limited as to what honey you can produce. Um, the I have no problem selling the honey. And that's the only thing is that I have actually more customers than honey I can produce, which is a good thing from, from my point of view. Um, I would love to be able to sell more. Um, but I would not certainly go down the route where we're just buying in uh, honey from other countries like Lithuania or Ukraine or one of these places, which can produce, uh, you know, have hundreds and thousands of hives on, you know, large monocrops in, in, in the likes of those Eastern Bloc countries. They can produce a lot of honey and then blend it with your own honey just to just have a uh, an Irish honey sitting on a shelf for the customers. So. You know, that, that's just one thing. In order to upscale uh, as a beekeeping business, it, it takes a serious amount of investment in terms of hives and bees to produce large, large quantities. Like in the UK now or America, you would be talking between 150 to 500 hives, maybe even a thousand hives. If you were serious and you wanted to go into the likes of, you know, Lidl or Aldi or Super Value and, and be able to give them a continuous supply of honey throughout the year, you know. You were talking about the production there and how it was well down. Is that because of weather conditions or yeah. is it environmental issues? So tell us what, what can you do to ensure that you optimise production and then what other elements affect that? Well, the first thing I'll take is the optimising of the production. So that's having... Uh, a good stock of bees. Um, so you're breeding the best queens for, uh, in order to have high uh, numbers of bees in the hive um, throughout the year. So you basically want a good queen that will lay, the queen can lay between 1,500 and 2,500 eggs per day. So at the height of the season, you, you could be talking a colony between 60 and 150,000, maybe 200,000 bees if it's a really large uh, colony so the more bees the more foragers they have the more food they can bring in so you're looking to breed the best queens we work in partnership with galty honey and a few other beekeepers which breed um have queen rearing uh, schemes breeding screen schemes um so we try and buy in a number of those along with breeding our own in order to ensure that we have strong colonies going into the peak honey flow season uh, so basically what you're trying to do then is limit the amount of swarming because all bees want to swarm around May and June. So what you're trying to do is make sure that you're keeping on top of your hives, that they don't swarm off so that you have the maximum numbers of bees in your hive to produce the honey throughout the year, um, particularly in the June, July, when it's peak kind of honey flow season. Um, the other thing then is like we are seeing the effects of climate change, that's for sure. Um, you know, last year was an extremely poor year. We had June, July and most of August rain and cloud, uh, not a lot of heat and sunshine, which uh, disturbed the uh, nectar flow for a lot of the flowers. So basically, if the flowers don't get enough moisture or sun, they don't put out enough nectar. And the nectar is the reward for the bees doing the pollination. Um, 
So that, that's what we saw again this year. We saw an interrupted season again in early May this year. It was poor weather. That also affected beekeepers when it came to breeding their queens uh, and trying to raise other colonies. And then, you know, we, we again saw a shorter season in June and July and then basically, again, a lot of areas, not all um, areas, some areas in Ireland uh, got, you know, good, good amount of moisture, but particularly here in Dublin, we kind of noticed that the moisture levels um, in terms of rainfall didn't really happen in June, July and into August. And so basically the plants again stopped putting out nectar from about the end of July. And then it's only now we're kind of starting to see the ivy coming in, um, which comes in around the middle of September, uh, starting to produce back large quantities of nectar again. Um, so yes, we are seeing the effects of climate change, you know, uh, warmer springs uh, and then kind of, you know, weeks of rain uh, where you're trying to get queens out and mated and we need like 20 degrees kind of on average uh, for a few weeks to get queens out to get mated uh, in the fine weather you know because if it's raining you know uh, the queen won't fly out and then what happens then is she doesn't get fertilized and then she doesn't end up laying fertilized eggs which are the workers we need you know you're based in dublin the hives are down in fermoy in county cork how labour intensive is the is the work? Because you've talked about all the different elements of how the honey is produced and the things that have to be done. So how much time do you have to, to spend down on site in Fermoy? So I'm lucky I'm partnered with kind of with my brother. So um, my brother has um, a number of hives in Fermoy. I have about uh, between 10 and 20 hives in Dublin. Um, so it's kind of like a joint effort. Um, and then I have my uncle as well, who produces honey as well, um, a couple of miles away from our other main apron for my. So between all three of us, we're kind of pooling our resources in order to get that production every year so that we can sell the honey um, from late September in, into the following early spring when you'd be hoping to try and get maybe uh, oilseed rape or, or clover uh, honey in kind of May, June. Um, so you know, we do need the numbers, um, but it is labor intensive. Like, so come the summertime, you're basically inspecting the bees every week. And then depending on the number of hives you have, you know, you could be talking, you know, a couple of hours work uh, each weekend in order to go through them. Um, there's a lot more work definitely in the summer when it comes to May, June, July, because you're going in inspecting regularly to make sure that the uh, bees aren't trying to supersede our rare queens. Or if you are doing queen rearing yourself, that is highly labor intensive. You like, I mean, you've a full schedule. I have an Excel document which tells me all the jobs every day that I have to do um, in order to ensure that you um, do the right procedure at the right time to, to get queens hatched out and laid out and, and get mated. Um, so so there's, there's an extremely uh, a large amount of work to be done during the summer. You know, then in the autumn, you're moving possibly bees up onto the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains or in the Galtees or the Knockmill Downs in order to get the header honey. And that, again, is like, you know, moving bees at night time because they don't like you moving them during the daytime. They, they need to be tucked up inside the hive at night time. So you need to move them in, at night into the new location. And, that, you know, that could be like, you know, one, two, three o'clock in the morning by the time you finish moving uh, 20 or 30 colonies up onto the header. And um, 
and uh, then getting them ready so that the next morning when they wake up, they go, oh, this is beautiful. We're looking at Kelty Moore today. Uh, how did that happen, you know? Um, and then, you know, bringing them back then um, to the main apiaries, then when the header flow is over, again, another couple of late nights. And then, you know, uh, once you've taken all the honey off, then like um, the other night, I was up till one o'clock in the morning straining and filtering header honey for the likes of the Irish Food and Quality and Drink and Drinks Awards. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's labour intensive. But, and, but then the winter comes and then the bees are starting to kind of knuckle down in the hives and they're not going out as much. So they don't require as much. You put the treatments on for the varroa mites, you feed them, and then you basically just, as I excuse the pun, let them be over the winter. Um, and you might go in then in around December and, and, and treat them again for mites uh, and just checking them in January, February to, to make sure that they're still there, that they're alive after the winter and then they'll be building up into the spring again and then the work starts to increase again. But there's other beekeeping jobs that have to be done. Obviously, you've the maintenance of all the equipment, the hives, you've, you know, sterilization of the timber equipment, um, buying new equipment and assembling it over winter in preparation for the spring build up. Um, you'd be probably making candles into the late hours of the nighttime um, and, you know, putting together kind of like uh, gift boxes, et cetera, in order to hit the Christmas market as well, you know. So kind of really up until probably the, the you know, once this, the Christmas shopping is done, that's kind of when you can take a break yourself. And then probably January, you'll probably give yourself the month of January off and then you'll be starting to think about the beekeeping season then come February again, you know. You're clearly very knowledgeable about all the different aspects of it. So it certainly sounds like it's not the sort of business somebody should go into lightly. There is a lot more to it than people might think. And you talked there about the candles. So the, the beeswax is, is obviously used to, to make mm. other products. So in terms of the product range, you have the honey and the candles. Is there, is there anything else? Um, yeah, like so, you're kind of you're selling the 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 honey, uh, the beeswax. You're melting it down, rendering it, and uh, you can sell that back to Donegal Bees um, in order to uh, get a, an exchange on on fresh wax. Um, but you can also melt it down, as I said, for the candles. You can make lip balms with it. Um, you can make soaps. Uh, I haven't tried any of those yet, but that's the plan maybe uh, to kind of use some of that as well. Um, furniture polish. People uh, look for beeswax for furniture polishing. Um, so I got to get a few calls every now and then for that. Um, you can collect the propolis, um, which is the kind of the nature's glue that the bees uh, get. They basically go out to the trees and they take the resin off the trees and uh, sap. And they kind of use that as a kind of a glue or uh, antiseptic and they glue stuff down that they don't like in the hive. Um, you can collect that and people use that propolis um, for the likes of toothache and sore throats. Um, you can turn the honey into mead if you wanted to make an alcoholic beverage, if you're so inclined. Um, there's, there's lots of spins, spin-offs from it. Like, you know, it, it certainly is. Um, a nice thing to be into. You do have to be knowledgeable when it comes to a lot of it, it's particularly keeping the bees. So what I would recommend is like, I mean, it's not rocket science to, to keep bees. Um, there's, a, there's a certain amount of science that you need to know in order to be able to understand and manage the bees. But um, you're looking at doing a beginner beekeeping course. So like, I mean, what I would recommend anybody looking to um, 
take up bee, the art of beekeeping is to join a local association, do a beginner beekeeping course, and then you can progress on. You can do a preliminary and intermediate and senior um, exams in those. So as you gain more experience, you know, you can get certification, which I've started to progress myself. Um, I've done both the preliminary, intermediate, and, and attempted the senior exams this year, um, which was a good time with COVID. A lot of the stuff was online, so it kind of suited uh, over the winter months. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, it, it's it's an enjoyable and it is a rewarding and, you know, it's extremely calming too when you go working with the bees, like, you know, they have this kind of calming uh, influence. So, so they kind of react to you as well. So if you're calm, they're calm hopefully and um you know it, it's 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 very rewarding when you look in and you just see you know the the activity of the hives and you see what they're doing inside and you know you're always learning like you know uh when it comes to it and even you ask a hundred beekeepers a question you'll get a hundred different answers like you know so uh, you do have to kind of find out and and use experience and and uh, and get the hands on uh, when it comes to it as well you know and making the finals of the Blossnair and Irish Food Awards mm. must be hugely rewarding as well. Yeah, so we're absolutely thrilled. Like, I mean, if I'd have thought when I was younger that we would have honey in one award, let alone four in, in the first year that we started. So last year I was determined to enter the Great Taste Awards in the UK, which is the Guild of Fine Foods for those people that don't know it. So that's kind of a UK and internationally around, uh, uh, rewarded uh, uh, or renowned award. And then I entered the Blossom Heron and uh, we were lucky we won a, uh, a star in, in the Great Taste and we were uh, finalists now in the Blossom Heron Awards. And for me, uh, I think that is probably the nicer achievement because, you know, it's a, it's an Irish award. It's nice to be recognised um, in your own country. Um, not to say that a great taste internationally is, is, is not nice either. Um, but we're also made finalists for the Irish uh, Made Awards as well, the Irish Country Magazine. Um, we got nominated uh, for the final in that in the food category as well. And fingers crossed, the Irish Food and Quality Drinks Awards. Um, we're entered into that now. I'm submitting those again tomorrow. Um, so, you know, four awards this year and, uh, you know, uh, a finalist in two, uh, a star in another, and um, we'll see what the other one brings out. But yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm literally blown away. Well deserved after all the hard work that you've put into the business in such a short space of time, Andy. It's been great to talk to you today all about it and best of luck with the results with the Bloss Nairn Awards. Yeah, thanks very much, Sharon. And I'd like to wish everybody, and that's everybody who's entered to the Blossom here, the very best luck. I hope you get uh, just rewards because it's a lot of work for particularly some, the smaller producers. So fingers crossed for each and every one of you. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we are preparing for the Blossnerin Irish Food Awards Finals which take place this Saturday. And our next interview is courtesy of the Blossnerin podcast and it is an extract of the interview that Fallon Moore did with Bloss judge Annie Dunn. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. 
I'm Fallon Moore and today I'm joined with Annie Dunn from The Art of Great Food. Annie is the former head of innovation at Harrods, the world's most famous department store, but now is with her own shop with The Art of Great Food. So Annie, thanks a million for taking the time. Thanks Fallon. I think it was one of the most natural people to ask because when we started talking about the stories at Bloss, who better to ask than someone who has judged, I think, since almost the very beginning of the yeah, awards. That's right. Yeah, I've been involved with the Bloss Awards for, yeah, four, I think it's 14 years. So initially um, as an entrant, because I worked was working with Super Quim, and I think on the first year we submitted, got I think 30 or 40 products for awards. So I, I got to feel that element um, of it. And then in later years, as you said, yeah, as a judge, which I've, um, I've loved and I've been, I felt very honoured to have had the opportunity to do it every year. Was it having taken part in the awards that made you think within your new role, yes, I'd like to be there as a judge? Yes, definitely. Because I think, you know, when I look back on the earlier trips to Dingle, they were, you know, as enjoyable as they have been in recent years. So I've loved that drive down to Dingle. And then I guess when we moved to London and I started to work at Harrods, you know, one of the really important things is that we keep our eye on the ball right around the world. And I think if I was to define what Bloss meant to Harrods at the time, it was that really it was a, a sort of almost like a shop window to finding the best of the best products in the island of Ireland, products from every single county. And they're brought together and when judged and you see, get to see the quality standards that are out there, it's a really easy way of, I guess, making life as a buyer easier. You know, you get to bring back some of those amazing products that, you know, every time I've come, I've had a wish list. So the wish list would be made up of, you know, immediate gaps that we had had in ranges. We hadn't necessarily found the right supply partner. There would be products that maybe we weren't really happy with in terms of quality and we wanted to find an alternative brand or product to replace it. And then there was a whole other element of just pure curiosity. The Irish producers, I'd say, are, are some of the most entrepreneurial and innovative thinkers in the world. So you always came over thinking, gosh, I'm going to find something different, something that nobody else is doing or has thought about. And, you know, the opportunity to then take that back to where you worked and excite your colleagues about it, you know, it was definitely something I would have looked forward to every single year. So it made the life, I guess, of the buyer much, much easier. It's something that you followed through on because when you did come over and see the best of the best of Irish, some of those producers then made the journey back with you. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I know. I was delighted to hear the pilot podcast and um, Mina being interviewed and telling her story because that's one of my favourite moments throughout the years as a judge and as, you know, representing Harrods was firstly tasting the product and tasting it, you know, unpackaged. So I had no pre-set judgment around what, you know, what that product was in front of me. And it got a gold star because of the nature of the fact that it tasted truly authentic. I mean, it, it genuinely could have been made in, in its origin. Um, also, it just the flavour of it was just amazing. And each of the flavours that we tasted that year, uh, and there was something about the texture. And, you know, at the time, I didn't know it was a, a done simply better product. I didn't know that it came in a, you know, convenient pack format, but that didn't matter. The product itself was, you know, of a really high standard. And it was something at that time 
that we absolutely needed to find a supplier. And little did I know that it would be, you know, set up in the in the Wicklow Mountains. Um, and at the time, you know, Mina was very new into business. I think it would have probably felt a bit daunting for her. But, you know, we we always set about um, working with supply partners and we call them partners because that's what they are. If the product is of exceptional quality, then we'll make it work. Um, and in, in this case, it was an own label opportunity. And um, so it was taken on the Harrods brand, which again, was really important for Mina to understand what that meant. And it is a process that can feel a bit daunting, but, you know, we worked really closely together and very quickly ended up with a range of products on the shelf. Indeed, I think it might've been for the Christmas, the following Christmas, if I remember rightly. Um, and, uh, and then she's, you know, gone on to do some amazing products um, and now, you know, is, is present in the redesigned chocolate hall that just opened a couple of months ago. So yes, yeah, so a really great example of a, of, a, of a gem, of a find during the awards. It's exciting to see kind of how it all pulls together. And we had heard it from both sides. So when we were chatting to Mina, I was saying that we could hear from her side about getting the phone call from you. I remember being asked, you know, you had a, an entry code and you were saying this nougat that I tasted is amazing. This is what I'd like to know more about, because as you say, it's completely blind. So it's lovely then the next year from our point of view, you know, yourself and Mina pick things up and, you know, over the next year are working away on that side of things. But the next year coming into the awards, and I don't know if you know this, but Mina called us and said, you know, I won't make it down this year. She had reached the finalist stage. She said, I can't make it down. The girls have been working so hard all year on this new deal for Harrods. We're going over. I'm going to bring them to London and I'm going to show them this amazing department store and let them kind of see it through. And it's a little like what you mentioned there about Mina possibly feeling kind of like it was such a big step. But then to bring the team through and let them see it, it was it was really lovely. Yeah. I remember her dropping me an email to, to let me know that she was coming across to London with her team. And I, I, I thought exactly that. I mean, she has worked, her team has worked as passionately as she has. And as, as she mentioned in the podcast, you, know, you can't do anything without a team of people. But to reward them and to acknowledge all their hard work by bringing them across to see, you know, what it means to be in Harrods. And that whole experience just coming to London. I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. It was such a lovely thing to do, but also that it coincided with another very special weekend, you know, was, was, was hard, but, um, you know, it, it was the right thing, right thing for her, right thing for her team. And, and they had a wonderful weekend. Listening to you talking there, I mean, you sound excited when producers have kind of come through that journey. And I'm guessing that's where the art of great food has come from now. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I, I just, I'm, I've always been flying the Irish flag, as as you know, and as Artie know. Um, and, um, you know, I think being part of the food industry and being able to, to I guess, spark growth um, in, in companies and help them to understand where the opportunities lie. And also importantly, you know, the things that, that they shouldn't compromise on feels to me that you know, over my 20 years of experience in the food industry now, I can offer insight and, and good mentoring advice and and also you know good practical advice around how to to grow your business and accelerate your growth really quickly particularly through innovation which is 
which is my first first passion um, product development. In the June issue of your newsletter, innovation was really the focus there. And just to mention, if anyone hasn't signed up to it yet, it's a very useful tool. It's really insightful and there's some really lovely tips in there. As you did focus on innovation there, and that's where your passion is, is it something you mentioned earlier on that you see Irish producers as being very entrepreneurial and innovative? Is there something with Irish producers that you see that really shines through for you? There's a few things, really. Um, one, I think there is a huge ability for Ireland as a nation to think openly and to be willing to, to try things and, and, you know, and take some risks. And also, if it doesn't work, to, to understand why it didn't and to, to adapt. And, you know, I think through the challenging times that we've most recently had with COVID and indeed Brexit, it's a real you know how how Irish suppliers and producers have come through both huge waves um, of change in their business is phenomenal. I've heard some amazing stories of how businesses have had to diversify, have had to be more agile, have had to pivot their businesses, have had to change strategy completely. Um, so there's that real sense of willingness to 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 do the right thing, depending on the situation. Um, I also think there generally unwilling to compromise on quality which I think is just so important in laying the foundations for long-term growth and long-term you know success in business is hold on to your quality attributes hold on to you know not allowing people to get you to compromise on quality whether it be through I don't know retailer negotiations or looking for a lower spec product because you know it'll it'll give you more volume if it's your brand, it's really important that you don't compromise on that quality. And I can I can see that over the years through judging that so many suppliers haven't compromised on quality. And if anything, they've upped their game in quality. And each year, you know, whether it be through um, the fact that maybe they didn't win an award at one stage and really wanted to win an award, you know, in, in the following years, they've really upped their game in quality. And I think that's, you know, generally would be another big thing for Irish suppliers that I really admire and and think that they should always remember through challenging times. It's just, you know, don't compromise in quality. And my piece of advice is to subscribe to the newsletter because I think since you launched it earlier this year, it's it's been really interesting. It's been really lovely to open up that monthly newsletter. So great to catch up with you today. You're listening to The Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM. Welcome back to The Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and tonight we are preparing for the Blossnairn Irish Food Awards Finals which take place this Saturday and our final guest this evening is Morris Gilbert from Ballyhoira Apple in East Limerick who have a product in the finals. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. Morris, great to talk to you again. It's been a long time since we chatted. It has indeed, Sean. It's been a while. Well, just for the benefit of the listeners, tell everybody about Ballyhoira Apple Farm over there in Kilfinnan. You've been in business a few years now. We have. We, we, we started, I suppose, um, kind of by accident out of, out of the recession some years ago when, when the construction industry collapsed. Um, I, I took it on myself to try my hand at... Um, 
making a living at the apple business and making apple products. So like we started with plain apple juice and a few apples doing farmers markets. And now we are in the fantastic position that we are supplying not alone our juices, but mainly apple cider vinegar all over the country. Well, let's go back now to the beginning because the orchards actually started, you were growing those in Churchtown in County Cork, and then you relocated them, which is not an easy thing to do, but you were very successful at it. And I think it's a really interesting part of the Ballyhara story. It is, I suppose, we, we, obviously after the recession, you know, things were bad. So we, we after a couple of years, we got an offer for the, the, the land that we had in Churchtown. And I said to my partner, Jerry Murphy, I said, you know, if you're getting a bit of cash, I said, we'll have to take it, you know. And we had a field in Kilfinnan, which would be, of course, not nearer to me, um, that we hadn't had acquired again during the, the, the boom times, but that we weren't making any use of. And I got the crazy notion of relocating the, um, the apple trees. So we uprooted the 5,000 apple trees and to like the flight out of Egypt with tractors and trailers over and back the road. And we, we relocated and replanted the trees in Kilfinnan. So I suppose at this stage, the, the growing is still part of our, our, our whole ethos. But um, at the moment, we would be buying the majority of our apples from the Irish Apple Growers Association of which I'm a member. It always makes me quite sad whenever I go into a supermarket and see apples that are imported from various different destinations because we have the climate and the environment in Ireland to grow apples. Uh, we have, um, I suppose we have the perfect climate for juicy apples because, you know, we don't have to irrigate the land. We have plenty of um, natural rainfall you know, people complain about the rain in this country, but only for it. We wouldn't have the luscious grass and we wouldn't have all the, the nice veg and um, fruit that we can grow in this country. You know, because we don't have to irrigate unlike other countries. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a blessing, really. And whenever it comes to your apple just then, is it a certain variety of apples that you use to, to make it? Well, we would have a blend. We would have a lot of different varieties. You know, we have like Seaval, we have Panova, we have a few unusual varieties, but it's it's a blend really of those. But I think it's it's more it's as much the freshness as anything else, and it's the fact that we would pasteurize in the bottle rather than pas batch pasteurizing, um, which makes the difference to our to our apples. Just explain what you mean by that pasteurizing in the bottle as opposed to batch pasteurizing. Well, I suppose a lot, a lot of people would batch pasteurize where they would take a couple of thousand liters and in a big tank, they would be pasteurized. Whereas we put the juice into the bottle and then we pasteurize it. So it's, it's the, the, the goodness is still contained within the bottle. And the range then extended quite early on from just plain Irish apple juice to lots of different varieties. Tell me about the current range and what's most popular there, because you do a lovely one. Is it a mulled apple juice that you can heat up? It's lovely around Christmas time. That's right. The mulled apple juice is very popular. 
And that was, I suppose, our first branch out from doing the plain juice. When the plain juice wasn't selling, you know, in the winter time and coming up to the first Christmas that we were trading, um, we came up with this blend for the mulled apple juice. And it has continued to be very popular over the years. So it's, a, it's an apple and blackcurrant juice blended with a blend of spices. Um, so you heat it in a glass in the microwave or in a saucepan, depending on how much of it you want to have. Um, we were very lucky in that we got, we got silver for that at Glossnairn in 2010, and we're shortlisted again this year. We entered it again after, on, on, its, on its 10th anniversary. We entered it again this year, and we've been shortlisted at Gloss. That's fantastic news. Congratulations on that. And you always were very good to go down to Dingle and you would have had your stall there selling all your wares. You must have missed the markets over the past 18 months or so. Well, we're, we're, we're of course, um, Dingle would always have been the highlight of the year because we go down and it's not alone, I suppose, for the amount of support we would get and the amount of stuff we'd sell. And the fact that we always had a few products um, that would be in the awards as well. But um, it's the whole, the whole meeting other producers and having that weekend with other producers that um, it was actually the highlight of our, of our trading year when we, were, when we were doing a lot of markets. Um, you know, I learned more at markets and I learned more meeting other producers than I did on any of the courses that I did. Because you're talking to like-minded people and, you know, they would taste something and they would say to you, you know, maybe if you did a little bit of this or maybe if you took out that. Um, and I got a lot more education at markets than, than I did, as I say, from any of the courses we did. Because you're talking to like-minded people. And that is the way that a lot of food producers and artisan food producers in particular start out. They start at the market and your network has expanded beyond that because you're in, your, your products are available from a number of the, the major retailers now. Yeah, I suppose we were lucky enough to get on the, the, the first thing we did. We got on the Food Academy course with Musgraves. And that was a, a huge learning curve because... We had always sold a bottle of juice and I was always there to promote that bottle of juice across the counter when you're selling at a market. Whereas when it's sitting on a supermarket shelf, the bottle has to basically sell itself. So presentation, labeling, bottling, um, you know, were looked at in a completely different light when we did the Food Academy. As well, we progressed from that then like our, our cider vinegar, I suppose, is probably our, our biggest seller or is our biggest seller at the moment. Um, and we soon realized that, you know, it's not an everyday buy. So we had to look further than, than, than Musgraves. And we had to look at, at several other outlets because it's something that people buy maybe every two to three weeks, as opposed to something that they buy every week. So we needed a lot of outlets. So following on that, we did the kickstart with Lidl and we were successful and we did the grow with Aldi and we were also successful with that. So um, 
we had a bit of a dilemma then, you know, which would we go with Lidl or would we go with Aldi? And, you know, they both came back with the same answer to us. Once you can fulfill your contract with us, you know, we don't mind if you sell with whoever else you sell with. So we are now with Lidl, we're with Aldi, we're with Lidl Northern Ireland, and we are with Musgraves, Super Values and Centras. So we're in over 400 outlets around the country, um, in particular with our cider vinegar. And it's really interesting what you said there, that they don't mind who you supply to as long as you can fulfill the order. Because I know from working with Blossnare and at the awards every year, some of the smaller food producers can get inquiries from the multiples. And it seems like, gosh, this is fantastic. But they maybe don't have the capacity to do what the multiple would, would want them to do. Have you any advice for those food producers or drink producers that are that find themselves in that position? Well, I suppose we we recognised early in the time that, you know, you get one shot. You know, if you're going into to one of these big multiples, you get one shot at it and you need to be prepared. You need to make sure that, number one, I suppose, that your product is 100%, your packaging is 100%, and that you, if they press the button, you need to be able to respond. Like, I'll, I'll give you an example. We say we were supplying both Lidl and Aldi during the, 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 the start of the pandemic, and our cider vinegar was moving nicely through 2019, but come March 2020, um, on the, the, the kind of the, the, the start of the pandemic, um, both Lidl and Aldi pressed the button and they wanted three times the quantities they'd had the previous month. Now, had we not been ready and had we not delayed our entry into those we wouldn't have been in a position to fulfill those orders and we'd have fell on the floor on, on both counts. But we, we put a lot of investment into it and we, we made sure that, you know, whatever was asked of us, we, we, we would be able to answer the call. So I think that is, the, that is the most important thing. It's grand to say you'll get the orders and you can get the orders, but you need to be able to supply and then you also need to be working in tandem with that to create awareness that the that the product is a, is there and available from certain places because if it doesn't uh, sell from the shelves, well then that affects future orders. It does, but I suppose you see the 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 way the thing works is that you know you would always be put on a trial first, so you know they would put you on. Um, you know, with a small quantity in on a special buy for a couple of weeks. And depending on the performance on that, you know, they gauge like where you might have 40, 50 participants in the special buy, maybe five would go through to get a place on a second trial. After the second trial, then, you know, they might pick three that would go through as um, uh, for, for a one year contract. So, you know, that's how it works. Now, they worked very well with us and, you know, they, they, they educated us along the way. And like what I found was that, you know, the attitude is that nothing is a problem. Everything is a challenge. 
you know and if you look at it from that point of view you the, the, there are ways to find ways around things you know and you can you can you can you can adjust things and you can you can you can duck and dive a little bit around the the, the issues and come up with solutions that's what it's all about it's all about coming up with solutions You've talked about the apple juice and you've talked about the mulled apple juice and the apple cider vinegar. There's also another product, the hot frisky. Yes, uh, the, hot, the hot frisky was something we came up with because we, we had a lot of um, people coming to our stalls during the markets. And, you know, they, they liked the idea of something that didn't have alcohol. Because you know, you have drivers, you have pregnant ladies, you people who just don't want to drink. And you know, it seems that the market was was, was lacking in uh, an alternative for non-drinkers. So we came up with a product which is basically apple with green tea, black pepper, and a blend of spices. And we were lucky enough to be taken by Cork County Council at the time to a show in England. And we got a huge response because there was 5,000 products from 55 countries and our, our hot frisky got into the top 100. So that was a good, a good indicator to start with. And then we brought it home, we sent it to Bloss and we got gold at Bloss and the Heron for it. So, you know, it, it is a very nice product. Again, it's one you just warm in a glass in the microwave or in a, a saucepan. And um, it's a delicious hot drink without any alcohol. I think new product development is something that you're probably very passionate about, Morris, that you'd like to keep ahead of the trends, ahead of the curve, and always be adding value to the, the apple juice itself to do different things with it. Well, yes, you, you have to... You have to keep thinking all the time and you have to keep tweaking things and you have to keep developing. It's like just in the last couple of days, we had a couple of products we sent to the Great Taste in England and um, we had a, a, a glazing syrup that we did a little bit of over the last number of years. And we got a one star for that. I think it was two, three years ago. Um, but we kept adjusting it and kept tweaking it a little bit. And um, when the great taste were, were, were announced the other day, we got a three star. Now, there, there are only, I think, 21 products in the whole of the country that got a three star, about 2% of the entries. So like, we were very, very happy with that. So tell us about the products that are in the finals of this year's Blossom Aaron Awards. Yeah, our, our mulled apple juice is the main one that's in there. Um, again, a product that has been around for quite a number of years, but it's a favourite all the time coming up to Christmas. You know, a lot of we've we've quite a number of companies now, and they put it in their hampers, and it's available through Super Values and Centras throughout the country. Well, we look forward to seeing how you get on with that at the awards whenever they're announced on Saturday, the 2nd of October. In the meantime, it's been lovely to catch up with you. Great to see that everything's thriving and going so well, Morris, and continued success. Thank you, Sharon. No, it's great to have a chat with you again, you know, from, from your days in Kilfinnan, we remember you well. 
<laughs> and um, you know, I've I've called to see you there in the Castle West on a couple of occasions as well. And uh, delighted delighted to catch up with you again. Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up. Delicious. Mmm. And best of luck to all the Bloss Nairn finalists. Be sure to follow hashtag Bloss 2021 on social media on Saturday for all the news. Thanks for listening to tonight and to my guests and contributors. Until next week, bon appétit. Do you want to get in touch with the best possible taste? Do you want to come on, share a recipe, review a cookery book, or just have a general chat about what you like to eat and drink? All you have to do is get in touch with me, Sharon Noonan, by sending an email to s.noonan at live.ie or send me a tweet at Queen of Org. Bon appétit!